The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in January 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome one of the few people in the universe, in the history of the world, and in fact the first person, the first performer to win the Academy Award, the Grammy Award, the Tony Award, and not one but two Emmy Awards. Welcome to Rita Moreno. Hi, Rita. <laughs> you actually know I got two Emmys? That's that's thrilling. Well, I know you got it for, <laughs> no the, one ever knows for that. the Muppet Show and, of all things, the Rockford Files. Rockford Files. There was, oh, it was a wonderful part. It was uh, She was really a sweet charity kind uh-huh. of character. She was a... Uh, a uh, very big-hearted and generous and warm prostitute named Rita Kiepkevich who talked like that. <laughs> and the audience just fell in love with her, so I did three appearances on it, mm. and uh, I got two nominations out of that mm. plus one Emmy. And, of course, the Oscar for West Side Story playing Anita in the mm-hmm. film version of West Side Story mm-hmm. and the Tony for The Ritz in 1975. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to mention at the beginning that you're currently appearing here in New York at the Carlisle, the Cafe Carlisle, doing a one-woman show called Little Tributes, which features a lot of Broadway show tunes. It does. It does. Uh, but most of them, of course, uh, the ones that nobody knows. <laughs> I seem to have an uncanny ability to pick the ones in big hit shows that people say, I, I don't remember that, mm-hmm. but they're gorgeous. Well, you start off with uh, Broadway, My Street. Yeah, and I that's think. from 70 Girls 70, which is Kander and Ab. I do a couple of Kander and Ab tunes. Well, you do um, uh, Class from Chicago. From Chicago, which always surprises, surprises everybody. It's so wonderfully vulgar. Mm-hmm. I love that song. <laughs> I'll tell you, though, when there's not a big crowd in the cafe... They look at you strangely. It takes them a while to get it. You know, what? whatever happened to class? Mm. Why is everybody such an ass? It just sort of takes them by surprise. And for people who may not be familiar with Broadway, with that song, it must take them by surprise. And the way you deliver it is a little bit different than it's delivered in, in the show. Oh, completely different. In, in the show Chicago. In the show Chicago, it's a Velma, a felon, mm-hmm. uh, commiserating with the uh, matron. And uh, so it's a two-person number there, and I just do it by myself. I love doing it. It's great fun. Well, you announced in the show that you turned 75 last December. That's right. And it took you only 75 years to make it to the From Cafe Washington Carlisle. Heights Washington to- Heights to Car- Cafe Carlisle. Right. How, how, did, how did the show come about? This particular show? Yeah. Uh, well, I was asked. I was invited. And uh, I didn't have new material. And that was the, the, uh, that was the scary part because I only got... Uh, invited about, um, I guess, near the end of November, and I started to scurry around and hustle and look for songs. And that's always, you know, that's very, very difficult to try to find not only songs that uh, you feel will do justice to the show, but shows that will more or less go together. Well, not one of them goes together. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness I'm the sort of singer or performer who who likes to uh, introduce songs in different kinds of ways by using material about the songwriter, using anecdotes, or sometimes telling them the circumstances under which the song is sung in a book show, which I love to do, actually, because most people don't know where these songs come from. Specifically, something like um, My Ship from Lady in the Dark. It's a song that a lot of people love, but is a complete mystery to them. It's a, it's an odd song. It's a beautiful but very odd song. It's a song that a lot of singers like to sing. Oh, of course. And you know, there's also the great Miles Davis recording of that. Did you ever hear that? I don't believe so. <gasps> well, look it up. It mm. is 
gorgeous, very, very contemporary, very modern version. It's, it's beautiful. It's very mournful, the way he does it. Hmm. It's interesting to me that in the choices of songs for the show, your cabaret show is not the greatest hits of Rita Moreno. It's not oh, material that you've done. No. Why, why that choice? Well, for starters, you know, people sort of uh, credit me with having far more hits than, than I really do have. There is West Side Story. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it was last night, uh, somebody said, sing America. Now, if you know anything about America and West Side Story, that is an ensemble piece. It's a question and answers thing. So I said to her, well, how would you like if I did this? I like to be in America, okay by me in America, everything free in America, personal free in America. I said, you need another person. (laughs) Oh, she said. And then I said, if I sang Maria, they'd think I was a bit odd. And the rest of the songs really are for... uh, uh, legit singers, which I'm certainly not. So that's it. I can't. I can't sing. Boy, boy. Well, I could. I could sing. Uh, cool. In fact, I might try that sometime. But you say those are for legit singers. It's so fascinating that you are someone who is so well known, certainly indelibly, for the film of West Side Story. But when we go through your resume, your bio, and all of the things you've done. You've done musicals here and there Mm -hmm. over the past 30, 40 years, Mm -hmm. but so many more of your appearances are actually dramatic appearances. That's right. Do you think people have a misperception? Well, I guess, but as you say, I have done theater here and there. All that here and there entails mostly really a lot of summer theater. Uh, A few, oh, about five, six years ago, I did uh, Gypsy with my daughter playing Gypsy, which was really a gas. Where did you do that? We did this in um, in um, in Minnesota at, at a summer theater. And uh, no one knew she was my daughter because she was just too scared with the, for the responsibility. So, But the wonderful thing is that she began to get standing ovations all on her own, and that was... So I'm glad that nobody knew. People would come backstage and say to me, you know, that girl just has a remarkable resemblance to you. <laughs> I think it was clever casting. <laughs> yes, right. Where did they find her? And um, I've done a lot of stuff in summer theater. Really, that's what I've really done mostly. In the last few years, because I live in Berkeley, I get my theater fixed by working at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, where I've done the first thing I did for them about three years ago was uh, Maria Callas in Masterclass. And what made that especially um uh, 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 Fantastic was the fact that uh, Moises Kaufman directed it. He's an extraordinary director. And Creator it was, of the Laramie Project and the director of I Am My Own Wife. Exactly. And in fact, it got such a such widespread notice that uh, Terrence McNally came to see it and actually said to me, I actually cried. You made me cry. He sounded so surprised. <laughs> and uh, then the, just this past year, I did 18 weeks again at the Berkeley Rep of uh, Glass Menagerie, which, of course, the world has done in the past year. And uh, we did a very interesting production, got great reviews, and uh, a lot of them saying, gee, nobody's done it this way before. Why? What was so different? It was very funny. It's Well, you know, Tennessee Williams' heroines are extremely funny. They're wacky. And I'm using very untheatrical words here <laughs> and unactory un- words, which they're wacky. And uh, Amanda Wingfield is one of the nuttiest ones, and she, uh, because she is so self-absorbed, you know, says terrible things to her children, horrible, hurtful things, 
And at the same time, because she is so self-absorbed, she's hilariously funny. The scene on the uh, fire escape with my son just turned into this truly hilarious scene when she when she's trying to get him to um, uh, bring a gentleman caller over to the t- house, and he breaks the news to her that, in fact, he is. And she goes crazy with happiness. And uh, it, it seems to me now that I can't imagine why anyone wouldn't also uh, utilize that side of her. She's really a very funny character. Look, think of, uh, I, I've also done um, uh, Rose Tattoo. She's a hilarious character, too. She's operatic, and she's emotional, and she's passionate, and she's uh, another passionate woman. And there are moments there, and I've done that twice now. I did it first at the Long Wharf. And uh, there were some wonderfully funny... Of course, he wrote some great stuff in that. That's very funny. When Manjagavalo is is courting her, that's a hilarious scene. But there's lots and lots in Tennessee Williams that's really quite funny, even in Streetcar Named Desire. Remember all the wonderful laughs that Marlon Brando got out of playing Stanley Kowalski, that the, the Napoleonic Code speech? I don't, think, I don't know that anybody ever laughed at that till he did it. it so there's lots of humor in uh, Williams. Yeah, it's interesting. As, as you're talking about the various roles that you've performed on the stage recently, mm-hmm. you're talking about Maria Callas, who, of course, was Greek, and you're not. You were born in Puerto Rico. You came to New York when you were only a child. And the early part of your career, pre-West Side Story, you had a lot of trouble getting cast as anything except a Latina, a, a Spanish Spitfire type of a character. Well, you know, Latina is fine. It was the kind of Latina that I uh-huh. was asked to play. Um, they were, as you say, the little Spitfire Conchita mm-hmm. Lolita ladies. I mean, I actually said... Uh, to one guy, why you, why do you no love Ula no more? <laughs> that was one of the lines. <laughs> Deathless prose. And when he told Ula why he no loved her no more, she threw herself off a cliff because he was a white guy. <laughs> and uh, I spent a huge part of my life playing those roles, very depressed. It, along with a number of other things, probably being Puerto Rican in a, in a not friendly place, sent me into therapy. And... Uh, it, it was one of those terrible situations where you couldn't wait to get some work acting. And when you got it, you'd be so sad and depressed because it was the same role yet again. Well, before West Side Story, something like 18 different movies that you were in. Mm-hmm. Then after West Side Story, I read somewhere that you had trouble the next seven or eight years getting cast as anything again except a Latina because of being Anita in West Side Story. And again, as I say, there's nothing wrong with playing a Latina, but a stereotypical Latina uh, is what I didn't want to do, so I guess I showed them. <laughs> I refused uh, any offers that I did get. And by the way, there weren't that many. Uh, and I didn't I didn't do a movie for seven years. Mm-hmm. But that's when I started to do a lot of um, theater uh, in, in, the, in the summertime and television. There's always something. Well, let's jump back to when you first appeared on Broadway, which was, you were all of 14 or 15, as far as I can tell? I was 13. 13. Passing for 11. And what was Skydrift? Tell Sky us Drift. about Skydrift. <laughs> Skydrift was a play that was kind of very loosely based, though not officially, on Bury the Dead, uh, the Norman Mailer play, where... Um, Three soldiers come back for a last goodbye to their families. And uh, I was in one of those playlets within the play. And Alfred Ryder was in the play. And it was Eli Wallach's first play as well as mine. 
And that's how I know Eli. And we are dear, dear, dear friends uh, forever and ever. And in fact, Ann Jackson and I did our first movie together also. Sky Drift was written by a man named Harry Kleiner. It literally lasted... Four days, as far as the yeah. from the official opening to closing, it four days. It lasted four days. But I did something there that embarrasses me to this day, but it's worth telling because it's, it shows you how inexperienced I was in theater. I was a little dancer. At age 13, as yeah. you tell us. I was a little dancing girl. I did flamenco, and I played the castanets, which, by the way, I still play. And... Um, the scene takes place in the in the kitchen of this Italian family, and I'm Angelina, the the young child who was then about uh, I guess ten. And I noticed during the preview, the very first preview, we had about three previews <laughs> that um, that during the scene when the boy, the son, the dead son, comes back to talk to his mother, and of course no one sees him, and everyone thinks the mother's talking to herself and that she's really bought it. Um, there was a lot of shifting around and coughing, and I, you know, being the little theatrical person, my instinct said, this scene is not going well. The people need something. Mm-hmm. I took the spaghetti and twirled it around my fork and then held it above. I can't believe I did this. Held it above my face and slurped the spaghetti <laughs> into my mouth. Can you believe and it? Thus, a theatrical career is born. And of course, and of course, the audience started to titter, and she could she didn't know what was going on. She finally turned around and saw me doing this, upstaging. I her. really, but you know what? I swear, I was trying to help. Mm-hmm. I really was. The curtain comes down. She takes me. It was Lily Valenti, the actress. Uh-huh. She takes me by my neck, by my skinny little neck. And began to shake me and said, Don't you ever, ever do that again as long as you live. Because if you do, I will hear about it and I will get you. (laughs) (laughs) And so the next night? (laughs) Oh, no, I was very good after that. I really didn't realize that I I wasn't being helpful. So there's a little bit of a ham. I, I was a dancer. And there's a little bit of a ham in you, obviously. Oh, of course there is. Is there any actor who isn't a ham? Come on. We said you were a dancer. How did you become a dancer at, at this tender young I age? I was dancing from the time I was five years old in Puerto Rico uh-huh. to entertain Grandpa. I used to dance to records. Remember that? A record? Photographer. It's 78s, yes, probably. It's 78s. Yeah. And uh, when I came to this country, um, my mom had a visitor in our apartment. It was just my mom and myself who was a dancer. Her name was Irene Lopez, and she was uh, studying Spanish dance with a man named Paco Cancino, who was, in fact, Rita Hayworth's uncle, because her name was Margarita Cancino. And she saw me dancing around the living room, and she said, you know, I think Rosita has a future as a dancer. Which was your your birth name, Rosita. Rosita Rosa Dolores Alverio. And Rosita is the diminutive. And uh, it's like saying Rosola. Just in case you didn't understand this. <laughs> and uh, she took me, with my mother's permission, she took me to Paco Cancino, who said, oh, yeah, she's, she, this kid can do it. And that's how I became a Spanish dancer. I didn't do the kind of dancing I did in West Side Story ever in my whole life until West Side Story came along, which is, you know, some people call it modern and some people call it jazz. But I'd never danced like that in my whole life. More more Broadway-infused than oh, anything yeah. else. Oh, yeah. Very different from flamenco. 
John mentioned before the difficulties you had being seen as something other than a Spanish spitfire or a Spanish dancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what was it like to suddenly be in Thailand in The King and I? Well, uh, you don't mean recently, do no, you? No, I'm saying in that film, to get oh. that role, because certainly you were not Spanish in I, that film. I was not Spanish, and I certainly wasn't Thai either. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been someone else, in fact. It should have been someone who that really looked more the part. But uh, I was just thrilled because it was my first uh, movie under contract to um, 20th Century Fox. They had signed me a year before when Daryl Zanuck saw me in a film with Gary Cooper and uh, Susan Hayward uh, called Garden of Evil, which was shot in Mexico. And I just played a little cantina singer, and that's all I did. And uh, Zanuck saw me and just thought I was swell, and he said, can she speak English? Having having Mm -hmm. no idea. And they said, yeah, well, yeah, she definitely speaks English, and I was signed. So uh, I screen-tested for for The King and I, Franz Nguyen, also, I don't even know if you know her, Franz Nguyen, beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. Asian girl, uh, tested. She really should have gotten it. She couldn't sing, but that's beside the point. In those days, did it matter anyway? And does it matter even now? Well, the star of the film, Deborah Carr, couldn't sing. They had to dub her voice. And Marnie, Marnie but, but Marnie did a brilliant job. Do you know Marnie did such a great job that none of the crew knew that this was not Deborah's voice? Mm. Marnie is, a, she's a true artist. She just, she be, she studied uh, uh, Deborah, and she told me that that Deborah Carr helped her and coached her how to do her voice. Yes, and boy, did she ever! When she does the uh, the spoken uh, uh, introduction to getting to know you, mm-hmm. it's a true and honest, uh, a true and honest thought that if you become a teacher, as a teacher, you'll be taught. As a teacher, I've been learning. You could not. You go back and see that film, and you'll say, "Wow!" You'll be very impressed. Mm. Of course, you played Top Tim in. in I played Top Tim. Yes, beautiful Canada. gown, beautiful costumes, and uh, then there was Yul Brenner, who was just a spectacular person to work with. Deborah was fun because, uh, like many English women, it's so funny. People don't get this about English uh, actresses, at any rate. Uh, she's very saucy and salty. And she used to wear panties with naughty sayings on them, <laughs> and for reasons that I will never understand, she used to she used to haul me into her dressing room and say, "Rita, look at this. What do you think, darling?" <laughs> 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 some of them would say, "Heavens above!" I wish now that I could remember some of the things they said. But <laughs> there is Deborah Carr, you know, that very proper English school teacher in The King and I, with a very naughty. Panties, knickers, as she called them. <laughs> well, to, to quote one of her lines from another piece of work she did, when you speak of this, be can you will be very kind. <laughs> be kind. <laughs> Tea and sympathy. <laughs> oh, I think she'd enjoy hearing that about herself. She's a very saucy lady. Uh-huh. But obviously, number of film roles, a lot of television roles in that era, but obviously West Side Story was was a major, major moment for you. Well, the first thing that came that was major was, was The King and I, and uh, and then, of course, West Side Story. West Side Story gave me a world celebrity that I'd, I'd never had before. Well, tell us first about getting the role. Were you still under contract? West Side was Story? That? Yeah. Well, no, what happened was that was a, a Goldwyn, uh, the Mirish Brothers film, and um, I had already worked with Jerome Robbins once before. In fact, I did the only two films he ever did. I did The King and I. And then when West Side Story came up, as I understand it, my name was one of the first 
to come up for Anita. And um, and I auditioned just like everyone else. I, I did a scene for them. I did the candy store scene for them. And uh, I, I mean, that, that was with my eyes closed. I could mm. do that scene because I'd played that scene in my life too many times. And uh, then I did a singing audition, and that went well. But then... This is a good story. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> then Jerome Robbins uh, said to me, Rita, you're really fine. Everything is fine. However, you do have to audition for the dancing because, I mean, you know, if you can't cut that, you can't do the part. And he said, I really want you to. He said, I just think you'd be fine in this. And uh, I gulped really hard. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, well, fine. Uh how long do I have before I have to audition? And he said, well, you have quite a while, really, because we have so many people to see. You know, maybe a month, maybe a month and a half. Mm -hmm. I said, ah, okay, thank you. I ran. I had not danced since I was 16. Mm -hmm. I was then something like, my math is always terrible, but I was about 26 mm -hmm. or 7 when I, uh, when I was doing West Side Story. I ran to the local dancing school and applied, signed up for every dance class every day, all day long. I mean, I was working from 9 in the morning till uh, 6, 7 in the evening, which is a very, very, very long day. And it was like asking someone to play 10 sets of tennis out of the blue every day. Back to back. I really, it's a wonder. It's, it's a wonder that I didn't get violently ill. But I remember one teacher saying to me, I'll get to the how I got this in a moment. <laughs> I remember one teacher saying to me, I don't want you in my class anymore. I said, why? Oh, why? Because it was a jazz class. She says, because, dear, when you work in my class, you turn a funny shade of purple, and I'm afraid something bad's going <laughs> to happen to you. Truly. I worked so hard that I used to raise a fever. I would get bright, bright, bright red, and I'd have huge goosebumps, which is what happens when you have a fever. Now, back to the how did I get it. So uh, the day came, no, oh, about a week before the audition was to happen. I still really wasn't up to it. And I called a girlfriend who had played Anita on the road. Her name was Deborah, And I said, can you help me in any way? I just know that I'm nowhere near ready. Can you? Is there anything you can do? And she said, well, I'll teach you a section of America and a section of the Mambo at the gym. She said, but I can't guarantee that that's the section that they're going to use for the audition. I said, I don't care. Just, you know. So she taught it to me. And I went in the day of the audition, and um, Howard Jeffries, who was the assistant dance director, who was just brilliant, by the way, um, he is certainly a good part of what made me look. If I look good at all, it's because of him, not just Jerome, but also Howard. Um, he said, okay, l let me teach you a section of America. And I held my breath. I said, Okay. <laughs> and it was the section that Deborah had taught me. Mm. And I did it. And he said, Good, good. Okay, now let me teach you a section of the uh, Mamba with the gym. And again, it was the one that Deborah had taught me. I did that. And it took weeks before I heard anything, and I was so nervous. I found out subsequently that Jerry was very, very anxious to have me and wanted to know how I did. And he called up Howard and he said, So, how did she do? And Howard said, well, she, she did pretty well. He said, we're, we're going to have to really beat it out of her. It's, she, it's obvious she hasn't danced for a while. But he said, mm -hmm. you know something? <laughs> she learns so 
fast. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> it was worth all the minutes, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good story, too. Mm-hmm. Well, West Side Story was obviously a, a, a career changer for you, but you had also been, prior to West Side Story, in probably the quintessential musical created for movies, Singing in the Rain. Oh, my favorite movie. Is it, it is, oh, my God. God. One of the best of all time. That is the perfect movie of all time. I think it's the perfect movie. That and um, and uh, My Fair Lady as a film mm-hmm. and, and West Side Story, I thought, just brilliant movie. I was there every single day to watch the shoot because I had about, I don't know, four little scenes. And, uh, and people don't even re- remember me because I have a bright red wig and I was so young. I mean, when I look at myself, I said, my God, not one little wrinkle. <laughs> How old were you? Early twenties? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I always looked younger than uh-huh. I than I you played am. younger. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm sure I was about uh, probably about twenty two or something like that. But here you are. Even though you've been dancing since you were age five, uh, you're now in a movie with Gene Kelly oh, and Donald oh, O'Connor, two of the god. great dancers of all time. Gene Kelly was my god. Uh, in fact, it was more Gene Kelly than Fred Astaire because I really wasn't that aware then of what style meant, and that uh, that de- developed later on as I as I grew up. But Gene, oh, I was just out of my mind with happiness and to this day I'm just so proud to have been a part of that amazing it's a classic and I'm what, in several classics now having having been there to watch them work what influence did that have on you and your dancing did well I'll tell you what it sent me back to a dancing school for a while and then I, uh-huh. I just couldn't get it where, where was a little Spanish girl going to get dancing roles or musical roles in what movie please tell me mm. none so I forgot about it and what I did and that you mentioned that earlier mostly it was acting whether it was in television or uh, or movies, it was always acting. There was nothing for someone who was uh, typed as Latina. It shouldn't have mattered, but it did. So that's the story well, of my a life. Different era in the fifties than it is today. Half for a century sure, later. for sure. And you know, even now, as an older Hispanic actor, it's I still have the same difficulties because. Uh, they want to cast me only as that. You know, now, now and then I'll get some wonderful role like the one I'm playing right now with uh, as Vincent D'Onofrio's mother in uh, Criminal Intent, L- Law and L- Order, L- Order yeah. and which has nothing to do with nationality. And, you know, there are films, you know, they're the Four Seasons, the movie that Alan Alda wrote and directed, has no specific nationality. And there are those here and there, but believe me, there aren't many. As we talk about your roles, back to the stage... Following West Side Story, your your second Broadway appearance was in a play by a playwright whose name people remember, Lorraine Hansberry. But mm-hmm. they don't even probably remember the play, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. Window. And in fact, most people would expect, because of Raisin in the Sun, that it was another play about African-American life. And it decidedly was not. It was Can a decidedly white play about Sidney Brewstein, obviously a Jew, who published his own uh, very independent and lefty uh, newspaper in Greenwich Village. I played Iris, his his wife, of many mixed races. And um, it was all about, oh, it has some speeches that soar. The only reason this play didn't uh, work, I think, is that Lorraine was dying. During the rehearsal, she passed away on the closing night. She she passed away on the opening the night. The opening night, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. 
and it really it was a flawed play. But and interestingly enough, universities uh, drama uh, students are still doing it in schools. It's a gorgeous play with many faults. But it was I, I remember she did a parody of Edward Albee that was really quite biting and devastating. She apparently didn't like that kind of writing, and she really let him have it. And um, we, it was an interesting play in the sense that Robert Nemiroff, her husband, who was then her widower, uh, would not let it close, and we literally passed, literally passed a hat around in the theater after every performance. It was just the most amazing experience. Um, I remember we got some interesting reviews. It was obviously not meant to run. But I remember getting wonderful reviews as a good ensemble player. And um, it was one of the great experiences of my life. It was, a, it was a difficult play, but it was wonderful. It was marvelous to be a part of something so radical. I'm passing the hat. Well, you say it was radical. Obviously, Lorraine Hansberry is now known as an incredible figure in African-American literature. Mm-hmm. Was there a sense that you were in something that was the successor to this landmark work, Raisin in the Sun? Were there expectations for her? Where was it culturally at that time? Or was it just a second play by a playwright? I think it, well, I think it was just an extremely bold leap that she took because the play was really mostly about white people. There was one character who was of mixed race, who was uh, black and white. And uh, he didn't have a huge part in it. And uh, her husband was her big champion, Robert Nemiroff, and he just thought that she should spread her wings, and by God, she did. It was really extremely brave. Uh, one could, maybe could say arrogant. I don't think it was. I think it was bold and brave and, and, uh, and imaginative. The Ritz, the one for which you won, uh-huh. won the Tony. Ah, uh, yes. Tell us about that, how you got into it and what it was. and the Well, whole, the, the this whole will interest you because... It all happened uh, this way. I was on Broadway doing... uh, I had replaced Linda Lavin in The Last of the Red Hot Lovers with Jimmy Coco. And at one point, uh, Jimmy had a a party at his apartment. And uh, his very good friend, Terrence McNally, was there. I'd never even heard of him. I had no idea who he was. And, And Jimmy said to me, Rita, do that crazy Puerto Rican character that you do. And I invented her while we were doing a West Side Story. You know, actors are always doing bits. Mm-hmm. On your 10-minute break, people are always doing bits. And I remember one time saying, okay, here's this Puerto Rican chick who, who sings and dances who cannot sing and cannot dance and is so arrogant about it. So um, I did for uh, the company, his, his party people, including Terrence, I had a dream, a dream about Joe, baby. It's going to come through, baby. They think they were through, my baby. And I went into the thing, looks well, thing, look great, gonna have the whole well on a plate. Well, Terrence, along with everybody else, was laughing. And then I did the Player King speech with the same accent. big, the epic, I braid you. I pronounced it to you, dripping the underdog. And then I did a little bit of Hiawatha from the jaws of Gichi Gome. Crazy stuff. Well, Terrence came to me at the end of the evening, and I still didn't know who he was. I, I, I was introduced to Terrence McNally, a person. And he said, I am going to write a play for that character. He did. And, uh, and I said to myself, sure, I never had that kind of luck. I said, well, thank you very much. About a year later, Jimmy Coker runs into my husband on Broadway, and he says, did you get the script yet? And, and Lenny says, 
one, one script. He said, the tubs, the tubs. And uh, Lenny said, no. He says, well, my friend Terrence McNally wrote a part for, for uh, Rita in it, and uh, you'll be getting the script soon. And a few days later, we did. And I sat in bed reading it, and I remember my husband was asleep, and the bed kept shaking. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> and I was trying to be quiet, and he kept saying, will you please go somewhere else, or else to read this? She was then called Rita Googie Gomez. I was asked to do it at the, uh, what was it, at Harvard? Was it? Yeah, no, Yale. Robert Brewstein, as, as a uh, work in progress, and I, I was unable to do it because I was doing something. Mm-hmm. And Carmen de Lavalade took on the role. And when it came to Broadway, they said, hey, you want to do this? I said, mm-hmm. you bet I do. Well, it was written for you. You had it to do it. It was written for me, and it, it was just one of the great joys of my life. We laughed every single night in that show. We laughed. It was so hard not to break up. It was such a wonderfully, stupendously silly and absurd comedy. Well, for people who don't know it, we should say that part of the reason you were breaking up probably was not only from your performance, but you were also on stage with Jerry Stiller and Jack Weston. Oh, Jack Weston was hilarious. And F. Murray Abraham. F. Murray Abraham played the queen. He played a queeny part in that, and he was (laughs) delightful. He was in the movie version also. Steve Steve Collins played the high-voice detective, and there were just an awful lot of very funny people in it. For that play, which which we haven't said, is set in a in a gay bathhouse. It uh-huh. was a farce that that ran ran around in there. Was that considered shocking in the era in which you did it? Certainly, gay rights was just starting to emerge. Just oh, the awareness. it was considered shocking. Absolutely, it's it's a wonder that we ran at all. You know, we did it. We did the preview out of town preview in Washington D.C. and it went okay. And, you know, we did some fixes and stuff like that, and then we opened on Broadway. And um, a lot of people were actually shocked. The interesting thing is that, except for one person, no Latina was ever offended at my portrayal of Googie, who is truly a completely talentless woman who you can't even get the English language straight. But never, it, so they understood that character. A lot of people thought I was doing Charo, which is odd. <laughs> I was not. This was something that came from me. We should point out this was 32 years ago, 1975. That's right. So that's, that's the but era. But you know, when you, see, when you see the film now, uh, it's, it's not quite as funny, although I, people who see it love it. It's not quite as funny as the play because Richard Lester, who directed the film, he did the Beatles movies, didn't get it. I'll never forget, we had one table reading with him. <laughs> Terrence was there, and we're going through this thing, and then we stop for a ten minute break, and he and he rifles, you know, through the page, and he says, "Ah, oh, all these words, <laughs> all these words." Okay. <laughs> well, you know, he was a cartoon artist, and that's what he did brilliantly with the Beatles. But that's that's what it was all about. It was all about attitudes. That's what the whole play was about. It was about attitudes and language. And he didn't get it. Can you believe it? <laughs> Interesting. All these words. Well, from 1975, fast forward a decade to 1985, and the female version of The Odd Couple with you and Sally Struthers. Yeah. <laughs> Talk was... about your non-traditional casting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gender reversal. Well, everybody kept saying, not only gender reversible, but every, everybody kept saying, 
why are you playing the slob? Why isn't Sally playing the slob? And she, her feelings really got very hurt. She says, well, I, I bathe. I'm a clean person. Why do they think I should be playing? Because it, in all the reviews, you know, we took it across the country before it opened in New York. In all the reviews, they kept saying that the, the roles are reversed. You know, Moreno should not be doing that. She should be doing this. And uh, it was, oh, it was such a tough run for us on the road because... Um, it was directed by Neil Simon's brother. And, you know, he, he really, uh, he wasn't really a director. He taught comedy, actually, mm. and probably did it very well in, in L.A. He had a class in comedy. But uh, it wasn't working well. I, I don't want to go into detail. I've already said enough about that. But Neil lost heart. When we opened in Texas, that was our very first opening, one reviewer said, it's a man's play, and how can you possibly have women smoking cigarettes and playing poker at the at the top of a show? And you know, you know, you must know that he has has his, he has skin that's very very thin. And he said this a million times about himself. He immediately changed it to Scrabble, mm-hmm. which was, I think, we all were just devastated. Uh, big mistake, big, big, big mistake. More than that, the women in the cast were constantly playing poker backstage Next. and smoking and uh-huh. you know, doing all that. Uh-huh. It was just the strangest acquiescence. I've never really quite understood that. But um, I guess perhaps he felt from the get-go that maybe it should never have been a play for women. His his brother had talked him into it. Uh, for years he said, you can make another fabulous play out of The Odd Couple if you do it with women. And finally, uh, he convinced Neil. And I don't think Neil ever was really, really convinced. And maybe that's why he he, uh, succumbed so easily to one criticism about that. Well, other than that change. And it changed the tenor of the play. Other than that change, any other changes made for for women to play the roles? Oh, well, you kind of had to. There were things. But there was another thing that seemed to uh, work against us. Sally is an adorable woman. She really is this cute little cutie pie person. And by the way, she was extremely funny in it. And um, the thought of somebody throwing her out of an apartment just didn't sit well with a lot of the audience. Mm. It just didn't sit well. She was so cute and adorable. Why would anybody do that to her? Mm. Well, that was 1985. You mm-hmm. haven't been back to Broadway since. No. Is that by design? Yeah, it is. You know why? Because um, I've been asked a few times. I won't say a lot, but a few. Uh-huh. Uh I have, as you know, I'm 75. I have two grandchildren that I am absolutely insane about. And I'm not about to miss out on those early years. I'm, it's not like I'm 40. Mm-hmm. I'm 75, and I don't want to miss out, which is why I've been doing, um, my, I get my theater fixes at the Berkeley Rep. I may do a one-woman show because I have had quite an interesting life. I was reminded in an interview today on the radio earlier today that I was uh, that I attended and was within five feet of Martin Luther King when he made the "I Have a Dream" speech. I was very political, and I was very very political, and that was um, that was one of the mo- the high points of my life in many many ways. But before that, I'd been doing "Ban the Bomb" demonstrations and civil rights demonstrations, and it's something that people don't know about me, and uh, it's something that I would really love to include in a one-woman show. I think it's interesting because I don't think too many actors have that kind of, that side 
to them. Well, you're talking about the, the 60s and 70s when you were very yeah. involved. How did you get involved politically with all these different I had a roommate, activities? a girlfriend, uh-huh. who was very, very political, and she literally became my, my mentor and my teacher. And she knew that I had the right instincts. I just didn't know a whole lot about a, a whole lot of things. And uh, she was my uh, my teacher and got me involved in the first Ban the Bomb thing. And uh, I, it made me feel really, really good. It made me feel very good to be doing it. Well, tell us the circumstances. How did you come to be five feet from Martin Luther King when he gave that speech? I mean, you were you were a yeah. celebrity at this point. Yes. So that gave you some access. But in the, yeah, but why that's me? Not a, that yeah. was not an era. Nowadays, we certainly see celebrities get up on soapboxes right. themselves. Mm-hmm. What, what brought you to what that What happened place? was that uh, I had been very politically involved, and I was very involved in the civil rights movement. I had uh, Jimmy Foreman was a boyfriend. He was with SNCC for a while. Oh. So uh, I had that kind of access as well. But I was known in, in Hollywood as, or in, in California, L.A., as a person who was uh, very serious about uh, civil rights. And uh, at one point I was called and said, uh, was asked, if I would join a group of celebrities, there was a celebrity plane that was coming to uh, D.C. to literally sit right near Martin Luther King uh, for that particular occasion. Uh, I was sitting next to Diane Carroll. I was on my right. Harry Belafonte was on my left. There were, As I recall, there were only two white people there. There was um, Marlon Brando and James Garner. Hmm. James Garner. And you know what's so wonderful about him? He was never a terribly political person. I've known him forever. I did his first screen test with him at Fox, so I've known him forever. And I love him. He's a fine person. Never very political. But they got to him and they said, really, it would be wonderful to have your face and your presence there because you are so beloved. And uh, I think it was, um, was it Rockford Files or Maverick? I don't remember at the time. And he said, yes. On the airplane, he was so frightened and nervous that he had this huge, serious ulcer attack, and he was just downing all kinds of uh, stuff to ease his stomach. He was frightened because, for very good reasons, you know, uh, all he knew that was when people committed themselves that way in the past, they lost their entire careers, Mm. death threats and all kinds of stuff. But he stayed. And that's the only reason I would tell this story, because I think the man really has character. He was really, really very, very, um, he was in, in, in despair. He was so frightened, and he was so glad he did it. And uh, I'm so glad for him. Isn't that neat? Mm, yeah, absolutely. You, yeah. you bring up uh, James Garner, Rockford Files. And mm-hmm. as I said at the beginning of the, of the discussion, uh, you did win an Emmy for Rockford Files. I did. You've done a lot of television, a lot of film work. Uh, it's not like you haven't been acting the last 20 years or so. How did you get involved in all these different television shows, notably Electric Company and uh, Muppet Show and even Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? Well, when, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego is something that you do uh, uh, when you need to pay the rent. I mean, these are voiceovers. That was in the days when voiceovers were paying minimum. Uh-huh. We're not talking uh, uh, a Pixar movie. And, and you were the voice of Carmen Sandiego. And San I was Diego. the voice of Carmen Sandiego. And what was the other one you asked about? Uh, the Electric Company. Well, the, oh, the, the, the Electric Company came at a time when I had just had, my daughter was only three years old and I didn't want to do much. And I was asked by uh, the um, Children's Television Workshop to be involved in this new show they were doing that helped to teach children to read. They'd already been hugely successful 
with, with uh, Sesame, Street. Sesame Street. And they wanted a very diverse cast, so I would be the Hispanic representative. And then there was Bill Cosby. Right. There was Morgan Freeman. And people forget Irene Cara of Fame Fame was one of the kids in that. Mm. And I loved doing it. It was It's one of the great joys of my life, that show. I loved doing it. It was a show that ran from, what, 71 to 77 in, uh, on, on public television. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like the, the teenage version of Sesame Street, in a sense. It was, it was for that age group. But it was so hip. Oh, it was. Do you know the people who used to watch it? Lena Horne was a big fan. Fred Silverman, who was then the head of ABC television, watched it every day or every day that he and could. And later became the head of both CBS and NBC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, who else? Oh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Uh, Car- uh, James Taylor, Carly Simon. We had an enormous, who did not have children but who just loved the show. It was a wonderful show. And they've just, by the way, put out a box set of The Best Of, mm. and it's delicious. It's and just, really delicious. Just think the uh, music director, Joe Raposo. Joe Raposo, you know, who's who not easy being green. Right. That's right. right. Very hip. And the Sesame song. Sunny days. Da, 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 da. Yeah, he was marvelous. We've moved into film and television, but I want to come back to theater. There are two particular shows I want to ask about. The first is one that I didn't even know of, and it certainly lasted a very short time. But can you tell us something about playing Sister Sharon in the musical of Gantry opposite Robert Shaw? Imagine that, Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw, it was a fascinating experience that was. Um, he was actually fabulous as Elmer Gantry. He imagine. was fabulous. But one too many people said to him, wow, I didn't know you could sing like that. And that was the death knell. (laughs) It scared him. It scared him terribly. And by the time we opened, and you're right, we closed the next night. By the time it opened, he was a mess when it came to the musical numbers. But um, he was full of great stories. I mean, he's a Welshman for Pete's sake. He was just a... (laughs) joy he made all of us laugh he was there was never a a minute's temperament he was so smart and he was so bright and uh it was it was broke our hearts but he really really fell apart Hmm. that's Hmm. i mean that's the most i can tell you about it it was the rehearsal periods were just absolutely joyful Hmm. and uh here i was playing a non-latino role so of course i was beside myself with with glee thinking that wow you know, this is going to be a hit, and I'm going to be playing this lady, and then I can play other parts. And then it, it was not to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other the other stage oh, work I wanted to ask you about. Let me remind oh, you what sorry. happens in the theater. No, it has nothing to do with this, but it's just a, it just shows you. Um, I had been given a very expensive bottle of champagne for opening night, and I left it in the dressing room, thinking, well, you know, I'll come back tomorrow you night. Did the next night. It was stolen. <laughs> I mean, theater. Well, the other stage work I wanted to ask you about is you've done two major shows that, that I'm thinking of in London, certainly many years apart, but She Loves Me. Yes, that's right. In the 60s, and then years Sandra later, Boulevard. Norma Desmond. Can you tell us about your experience in London? Oh, Both of first times. of all, I'm an Anglophile. So is my husband. We, we just adore, adore. In fact, I lived there for a while uh, at about the time that uh, uh, the United States was going to... Uh, bomb Khrushchev's ship, which was coming over to bomb us or something. Remember that? Mm. Big, oh, my God, the missile crisis. It was called the missile crisis. At that point, my, my roommate and I said, let's get out of here, because we saw people raiding the uh, supermarkets to stock up on food and stuff. And it was just very depressing, so we went to London. So I know London, and I love it. Um, 
what happened is that I was in London when um, She Loves Me was had already begun rehearsals, and the young woman who was playing Ilona became ill, an English woman. And but all of the Americans who put the show together in, in America were there: Hal Prince, Sheldon Harnick, Jerry Bach. Um, oh gosh, who was the uh, choreographer? Oh gosh, Steam Heat. What's her name? Oh gosh. Oh, never mind. Anyway, they were all there. When this girl became ill, somebody said to Tony Walton, who was producing it and doing the sets and lights, you know, Rita Moreno's living here now. And everybody said, oh, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) And they said, yeah, should we uh, ask her? And uh, without auditioning, they just asked if I would do it. The uh, equity was not thrilled about it there. But they said, well, you show us somebody who can do it and we'll hire them. Mm -hmm. There's nobody around who can do this. So that's how I got to do She Loves Me in London, and it was marvelous. It was, it was a wonderful production. It didn't last long, though, the same as New York. It never, you know, it never had a long run. I think we ran about, well, nowadays it's considered a fairly long run. We ran about six months. And at that point, uh, Hal Prince called from New York, and he said, I'm going to do a play. He called me. He said, I'm going to do a play called The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window by Lorraine Hansbury. I'd like you to come to New York and do it. Again, you know, no audition, because he knew what I could do. And I got all excited and packed up all my trunks and came to New York, and at the last minute, Hal dropped out. And that's what happened with that. Norma Desmond is a really good story. <laughs> Which you tell in your show at the Cafe Which Carlisle, I but I'd share it with our listeners. It is a good story. Uh, when Glenn Close was about to uh, leave the Los Angeles production of uh, of um, Sunset Boulevard to open it in New York, I was asked to audition for the role of Norma Desmond. And uh, I was the only person, I was told, to ask to audition for the role. So that when they told me that I... I was assured of the role. I, I believe them. In, in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. In the Los Angeles production. I was thrilled. However, um, <laughs> as I say in my show, uh, at the very last moment, uh, that quixotic little pixie, Sir Andrew, decided at the very last moment to hire and sign Faye Dunaway because he felt she would sell more tickets. She didn't. He uh, closed the show. He dumped her. She sued him. She won. And as I like to say, the creator of Cats got himself skinned again. (laughs) And then I was asked about, after the show closed in in, uh, L.A., I was asked about six months later to do Norma Desmond at the Adelphi Theater in London. And how do you respond after this experience of sort of being led along a path? Should I tell you how you respond? Yes! (laughs) You bet! Of course I wanted to do it. It's the part of a lifetime. And letting bygones be bygones. I'm not going to take it personally. I mean, uh, if you do that, you, you shouldn't be in the business. You have to be a lot more resilient than that. It wasn't a reflection on me. It was business for him. She, he mm-hmm. thought she would sell more tickets. The interesting thing is that she didn't. I thought she would, too. And at the time, in fact, I thought, well, it's breaking my heart, but I, I, I understand why he would do this. Well, it also turned out that she couldn't sing. <laughs> turned out. Kind of difficult to be in a musical when you can't sing. <laughs> Films are one thing. You can be dubbed. In a musical on stage, you can't. But he did dump her, and you know, so she sued, and that's why she won. Hmm. 
before we wrap up, uh, I'd read that it's sort of your goal to do a show every couple of years out at Berkeley Rep yes. to stay close to home. Mm. Have you decided what's going to be next? No. Uh, I've played two really heavy divas now. I've done Maria Callas and I've played Amanda Wingfield. So we are looking for the artistic director, Tony Taccone, and I are looking for... I, I'm dying to do some costume uh, renaissance uh, comedy, something where I, my bosoms are popping out of my corset and people are pinching my bottom and that kind of stuff, and a lot of doors opening and closing. And I'm just dying to do something like that. I did something like that once called The Magistrate at Williamstown and had a ball doing it, and I thought, I want to do that one more time in my life. And now you're playing Vincent D'Onofrio's mother in Law and Order, Criminal Intent. Yeah. For, what, three or four episodes? Yeah. And mm -hmm. I read somewhere that um, you were in two scenes with one line in each scene in that first episode, and you kind of said, isn't there a little bit more you can do for me? Well, Warren Light, who is a wonderful writer who now produces and writes a lot of the episodes. The author of Sideman. Uh, Sideman, who's just brilliant. Uh, when they sent me the script with these two lines, I called him up and I said, you know, I would love to do this, but tell me that it's going to be a little different than this. He said, if you do it, it will be. And when I got here to do that first episode, I had about six scenes, which mm. I had to memorize overnight because nobody had sent me the script. <laughs> but yes, it's a wonderful part. It's a good part. And it could be an ongoing part, if you wish. Well, she's very ill, so I don't know how ongoing it's going oh. to be. I'm not, I haven't been told anything, but it seems to me she is quite ill. <laughs> And getting more and more ill by each episode. I think episode. so. I think so. <laughs> well, it's fun for at least a couple episodes. Well, it's a, I'll tell you what, it's a pleasure. Number one, the script's gorgeously written. And number two, which is uh, in the same place as number one, I'm working with D'Onofrio, who is just great. I love him as a person. We immediately clicked. We have a super chemistry. And uh, he's, I think he's a fine actor. Well, Law and Order, you've got the show at the Carlisle, the Cafe Carlisle, Little Tributes, a lot of Broadway music in the show, mm -hmm. and that runs through February 10th. Yes. What do you want to do other than Berkeley, and do you have any other future plans? Uh, I'm going to sing with the uh, Ohio Symphony, Columbus, Ohio, uh, almost three days after I close here, and then I want to rest. I was just putting this show together for the Carlisle really took it out of me. It had to be a brand new show. I couldn't do anything I'd done before at the uh, Feinsteins two years ago. So um, I worked my butt off. Well, how much rest do you get with those two grandchildren? That's different. Being Actually, they, they exhaust me, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but uh, I try to uh, uh, um, encourage them to play pool with us downstairs, which is very sedentary. <laughs> we have a billiard table. And on that note, Rita Moreno, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. I don't think I've had so much fun in a long time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rita. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.